an overarching theme and not spend too much time breaking down who's going to do what, whose responsibility is what, but to really consider who is the master of the house. That's really something we need to solve. If we can solve who's the master of the house, then I think everything else just falls into place because it's simple obedience, it's simple submission, it's simple love and respect. And those are elements that I think are very important. So if you'll find in your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3, we'll look at verses 18 through 21 tonight, 18 through 21. And all the while you can be writing notes to yourself, yeah, but I didn't see him do that, and I didn't see her do that. You can be making notes that way, and uh, don't let the messenger undermine the message that uh, Paul is giving to the Colossians. Colossians 3, verses 18 through 21 begins with this dicey statement, right? Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Then right on the heels of that very quickly, husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. And before the children start dancing, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. And then altogether, fathers, Provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. If you're thinking that that all sounds very familiar from some other place, Ephesians 5 and 6 cover many of these same themes, only with slightly different wording, although in some cases very, very close. And so we'll be alluding to the sister passage, um, just like we could have, with the verses preceding this about our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs also found in Ephesians 5. So here we have it, our text for tonight. And uh, we have to, in four quick points, come to a very good understanding of some things that are very important to us all. Now, as we get into this, um, I look at each of these verses, while they are directed towards a specific people group within the traditional family, I look at it a little bit like I had to look at my position on a soccer team in high school, and our coach sat us down, and he talked to us all. We had some guys that hadn't really played a lot of soccer. Their skills were very minimal. We had some guys who were a little smaller and very, very fast. And then, like most high school soccer teams, we had other guys that weren't built for soccer, but they still wanted to play. And they were a little bit more lumbering and cumbersome. They didn't quite look like the Olympic games that maybe you've seen, but they sort of stood in place while the game happened around them. And the coach looked at us and he said, now guys, look, we're all on the soccer team, we all have to be soccer players, but every one of you has a role, and it's a specific role. Do your role, and we have a better chance of succeeding as a team. Well, that was a big help. It turned out that everyone on the soccer team needed to know what a soccer ball looked like and to address it. We had a lot of guys that had played football, and they wondered what a soccer ball really was. We all had to know how to trap the ball or control it. We all had to know how to pass the ball and keep it on the ground. Some had to learn how to lift the ball and get it in the air. 
we all had to learn that you can't use your hands. That's a big problem. We had to know our spacing. We had to know our positions. But everybody had to know because in soccer, the team is somewhat fluid and sometimes the back row moves forward and the front line needs to circle back around. And we had to learn how to do that. But ultimately, we all realized we all have to be soccer players, but some of us have specific roles that are heightened according to where we're placed on the field and our role on the team. And that's what we sort of have here. Nothing that we read to any specific demographic is something that all of us aren't supposed to be doing in the household of faith. And I want us to understand that while we may have a heightened responsibility in a certain capacity within our earthly home, there's an element of that responsibility that we all share when we consider our heavenly home and our responsibility within it. So as we go through this, I don't want us pointing fingers. I don't want us to feel like this is really supposed to be a family seminar and this week is going to be for the children and this week's going to be for the husbands and we all separate out of the room and have our own um, discussions. This is something that as we listen to Paul's instruction to the Colossian wives should speak to us. As Paul gives instruction to the Colossian husbands, there are things that we all need to take in and understand. As Paul speaks to children, as children of God, there are things we need to understand and relate to. And then as Paul speaks to, as it says in our English Bible, husbands, there are things that we all need to take into account as we deal with those that God has given us stewardship over. So our first point is obviously going to be from verse 18. We're going to call it the subject of subjection. The subject of subjection. Now in Ephesians 5.21, we read in the, ver in the parallel passage uh, uh, a foundational verse before we even get to the discussion of homes. Be subject one to another out of reverence for Christ. And then he comes in to this uh, direct um, address to the ladies, the, the wives. It's a universal obligation. In James, we're told that we need to submit one to another in love. It's a universal thing. This idea of submission or of subjection is something that ought to be a habit of the child of God. Somebody who is saved is constantly considering himself behind the betterment of somebody else, is always deferring to a brother or a sister in Christ, is always yielded to the authority placed over him. It's not just a wife that has to worry about this idea of subjection, but in the home, we're specifically challenged to consider this. We are supposed to submit and resist the devil. We submit one to another. And Peter would even say, submit one to another and be clothed in humility. And that's really the basis of it all, isn't it? Clothed in humility. Where this idea breaks down is when we have our pride rankled and we don't feel like there's 
uh, that we deserve to step back. And yet, the humility of our heart, even as we considered this morning, is something that is to be paramount in every believer's heart. I am supposed to be humbled because my Savior himself humbled himself. And he didn't need to be humbled. He's the King of Heaven. He's the God of all the ages. And I should bow before him. And yet he humbled himself. So if he asks me to humble myself, even in some area where I don't understand, <coughs> my response is, yes, I must. Now here's the, universe, the unilateral deference then. Unilateral deference then is the woman is of the man. According to 1 Corinthians 11, 8 through 9, Paul's teaching about something that we don't completely understand and haven't done a good job wrestling with and teaching, but the idea of head coverings. But in there, he says something about, for the woman is of the man. Now, he goes on very quickly to talk about in Christ, we're all equal, that there is no difference in the soul of a woman or the soul of a man. But in the order of creation, God took the woman out of the man. And the woman was for the completion of the man. So Adam and Eve were a complete man. And uh, that's what God said was good. So then we're told here in Colossians, and we refer back to Ephesians 5 verse 23, the husband is the head of the wife. And what this means, again, is not the boss of or not the king of, regardless of how our society has abused these principles and where we have come to in Western civilization, the idea of being the head is that he's the protector and the authority over. And so rather than feeling as though it's a position of power, it's actually a position of responsibility. And for the ladies, then, it is a position of safety. And so the husband is the head of the wife, arranging herself under his protective responsibility for her. It involves, on the lady's uh, behalf, a sense of deference. That means Sometimes she has to say, it's not about me getting my way, it's about what's best for the family. It does involve love. It does involve love. For all believers are to love one another, right? And there is that sense of love that must be in, involved in the marriage. And there's also this word called reverence. In Ephesians 5.33, if you want to flip over and just find this verse... It's a, it's a very interesting sentence that we find. And the wife, see that she reverence her husband. As you look at this word reverence, it's this particular word is only found once in the New Testament. There are other, there is another word that is often translated reverence. And it has a, a similar almost synonymous association, but 
this word is only used here. And it's the same Greek root out of which we get the word um, paranoia. You say, okay, so the wife should be paranoid of her husband. Actually, no. But the idea of reverence carries a strong feeling of fear. The other word that is often referred to in reverencing authority has to do with being afraid of, um, not, not necessarily the same level as a phobia, but the idea of being careful not to offend. So we are, are very tractable and careful in how we handle the relationship. And this is something that is sort of foreign to us because we sometimes, the more we are familiar with people, the, the less dignity we give to each other. And sometimes we trample the boundaries that should be there to give us a sense of human dignity. Think about it in the workplace where everybody becomes too casual um, there is a loss of self-discipline and uh, behavior falls apart amongst people. But where there are boundaries, where there's a sense of, I, I'm afraid to um, offend, we're careful. And in that carefulness, we have probably a stronger, um, more edifying relationship. Well, between a husband and wife, Paul admonishes the ladies to be careful that they do not damage the relationship that they have with their husband by trampling the boundaries of his dignity. See, be careful not to offend. Be afraid to damage uh, his position of responsibility in the home. Now, I can't speak for you as to what that means regarding your relationships. But I do know that many homes break down because the emphasis of authority comes from the wrong position. And that there are many men who are weak in their authority because they have lost the reins of the home. That could be because they're men with little character. And so, guys, we should take that as a big kick. But at the same time, ladies, it's a responsibility given specifically to you. But as a general principle, we all need to understand that there's got to be this sense of reverence, this fear of damaging the God-given positions and dignity within the roles in a home. Oftentimes, men can damage the dignity by being bullies or abrasive in the home. Loss of control of force and things of that nature. That's, that's uh, a male-oriented loss of dignity. But oftentimes, then, there is this lack of fear for the role of the husband in the home. So that's very important that we, we draw from this. So deference, love, and reverence. But the ultimate rule, because it's stated for us here in Colossians, the ultimate rule, as it is fit in the Lord. As it is fit in the Lord. I don't think anyone marrying anybody 
thinks that the person they're marrying is perfect. Now, we have a, in our youthfulness, sometimes we have this dreamy fantasy that, you know, kings and uh, princes and princesses and happily ever after. But anybody that looks at the, the nasty now and now, the realities of life, realizes that we're in this for the long haul and it's going to sometimes be fairly brutal because there isn't a person in this room that isn't going to let somebody down when it really matters. There isn't a person in this room that deserves the respect of somebody else, you see. All of us are equal before God as sinners. All of us are redeemed equally from our sin by the overwhelming graciousness of a Savior. And so there isn't one of us here that deserves the idea of a superior authority or deserves reverence. That is reserved really for God. Who deserves it? And nobody's going to discredit God's character to say that he doesn't deserve the worship that we would give him. He is worthy of worship. But because he asks us, we model that in our home. And so regardless of he doesn't deserve, because he doesn't, that's, uh, you win the point. You can't argue against that. He hasn't done. Well, yeah, you win the point. He hasn't done. He isn't. Well, you win the point. He isn't all that he ought to be. But are you? And are you obeying what you have been given to do? Are you following your place in your role on the team? We come to the second subject, and that is the subject of sacrificial love. It's a universal obligation, just like our deference, our sacrificial love. It's a universal obligation. According to Ephesians 5.2, we are all to walk in love as Christ has loved us. And walk in love as Christ loveth us. That means that I need to be sacrificial and giving of myself. Not just to my best friends, but to all of the household of faith and even to my enemies. That's universal. Every member of the body edifies the body in love, according to Ephesians 4.16. According to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Then it goes on to say, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's a daunting challenge. We hear these statements in a wedding and it causes us to think, why would anybody say yes to that? Because it's almost a fool's errand to be told, I want you to love like Christ loved. Because we all know our limitations. Is anyone else here selfish like me? Okay don't have to raise your hand because I didn't even have to ask the question because we all have limitations, boundaries, not imposed by God, but boundaries that still bear the marks of shackling to loving this world 
that hold us back from loving like Christ loved the church, you see. And yet that's the admonition that is given to a husband, that we're supposed to have this unilateral love for our wives, giving, sacrificial, but there's a reason, to sanctify her. I am supposed to have as one of my ultimate concerns a work in me to help sanctify her, to preserve her from the pitfalls of life that are going to come against her, from perhaps the challenges of Satan in her life, perhaps the world and the pressures of life coming on her. I'm supposed to act in ways that preserve her from those things so that as Christ is going to present us as his unspotted bride, I should be living to sanctify my wife. In that regard, I think it has a lot to do with how we respect the one flesh relationship that ought to be present in the marriage relationship. That, that sanctity, that, that um, holiness of relationship bonds us together so that God looks at us as one person and we consider ourselves complete in each other. Sanctifying. And we're supposed to do it, at least according to First Peter, with this idea of knowledge. You know that little phrase from First Peter 3, 7, dwell with her according to knowledge. Um, but we know, we know, don't we? that we could live a thousand lifetimes. And guys, we're never going to get it, right? We're never going to know the whole book on our wives. But the knowledge here doesn't necessarily refer to figure it all out. And once you've figured it out, you can get it right. Because we know that's impossible. Because the target keeps moving and changing, right? But the point is that in this relationship, this knowledge has to do with an understanding that life isn't always fair, that we're not always going to get our way. So we're understanding. You're having a difficult day. I understand. And we simmer down, we step back. It has to do also with consideration. I don't push and prod and demand beyond the capacity of the one I'm given to care for and to sanctify. I have consideration. I don't make demands that are over the top, that are unfair, that may be disastrous. And I'm also gracious. I'm gracious. As the Lord has been gracious to me, I give. And you say, well, she doesn't deserve it. She hadn't done anything all day. How do you know? And what do you deserve? Are you giving? Is the attitude one of graciousness and of giving and forgiving? Um, in one of the places I was studying, there were three C's, and these are always easy to remember. Considerate, chivalrous, and companionship. Gentlemen, we're supposed to be considerate. Considerate. Thinking of her as better than us. We're supposed to be chivalrous. Do you still hold doors? Do you still carry things? Do you still 
wait patiently? Uh, do we still um, pitch in? Are we chivalrous? And do we offer companionship? Are we there? Are we present? Do we listen? Those are three very important things. The next part of that verse says, so that we're not bitter against the wife, not bitter against. This helps us a little bit in, in knowing about our spirit. Bitterness usually comes from a sense of hurt pride. I didn't get what I deserved. So I harbor the failure in my heart and I hold it against. And yet if we had the love of Christ in our hearts, we wouldn't be harboring the lack of things that we feel like we deserve. If we had the humility of Christ in our hearts, we wouldn't think that we hadn't gotten what we deserved, but we would be cherishing, nourishing, nurturing. We wouldn't be second guessing and we wouldn't be blaming. The ultimate object though is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to love our wives as Christ love the church. But we love our wives as we also have our eyes on Christ, you see. And in Christ, we have this love. And so that's something we have to pattern ourselves after. Our next verse is verse 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Children, obey your parents in all things. The universal obligation, of course, is that we're all supposed to be obedient unto the Lord, right? If you love me, keep my commandments. That's the best sign of showing that you trust and reverence and love your Savior, is that you're willing to do for him what he's asked you to do. But there's a, a unilateral deference that our children are asked, commanded to give to parents. You are to obey because it is right, according to Ephesians 6, 1. And in this case, we're supposed to obey in all things. There aren't questions or we don't make up little rules to say, well, I have, in this case, I don't have to obey you because I have different rules that get me out of the sticky wicket. But we obey because it is right. We obey because we honor. And we remember that in the Ten Commandments, this was the first commandment given with a promise. And that promise was that we may live long on the earth. And Paul reminds children in the New Testament church that this is a very important concept for us within the household of our Christian families, but also within the household of faith, that we obey those that have authority. And Paul would teach this obedience to authority, to government, to unfair human bosses, to masters, even for those that were enslaved, but obeying pastors who have rule over your souls and are shepherding you on behalf of the great shepherd. But all of this is as to the Lord. 
I obey even these failed, flawed human authorities, including parents, because I'm obeying my perfect Savior and his will for me. So the ultimate authority is the Lord. And then last, we have the subject of reciprocation. And this goes back to the idea of humility. Notice what it says in verse 21. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. <clears throat> the word is properly translated fathers, but in the Greek context, the idea of fathers, and in the context even of this passage, it could also be equally translated parents. Because even if the wife isn't specifically noted, when the wife operates with authority over the children in the home, it's under the authority of the father and they act hand in glove. So the idea here really is for parents. <coughs> now the important thing here is to recognize that we aren't to contribute to rebellious hostility in our children because our Heavenly Father is not promoting in us the right to rebellious hostility against Him. And as our Heavenly Father treats us and wants the best for us and is guiding us into His perfect will so that He can completely bless us, that should be our spirit towards our children not to get them out of our way, not to control them because we just can't tolerate it anymore, but to make sure that they're being honed in the image of the Lord Jesus too. Now that brings a problem into it. Can any of this work without the Holy Spirit? Can we succeed in mentoring a disciple who doesn't even recognize the Lord Jesus as Savior? The answer is, that, that's, a, that's a, a fail. We can't disciple somebody who's not a disciple. And so it behooves us as Christian parents to live the gospel in our homes, to make sure that the model of the gospel is alive and well in our homes until our children see their need of the Savior and yield to him. And then with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can succeed. Where we oftentimes fail in Christian education is trying to make Christians out of worldlings. They, sh they will be upset. They will rebel, rebel against being asked to be righteous when they don't have the Holy Spirit helping them, right? If I don't have the Holy Spirit, the things of God are foolish. Why would I yield to something that in my heart I know is absolutely foolish and is contrary to my very nature? If I'm not saved and I don't have the Holy Spirit, the whole idea of being asked to obey, to submit, to yield in love and respect within a Christian school setting is going to be a real problem for the one who is still an enemy of God, you see. And so in our homes, we have that tension too until the children understand the love of Christ and accept the gift of salvation so freely given. That needs to be a focus in our homes. And parents need to be very careful that we don't have the authority 
and the brutality of that authority to demand compliance without understanding that we have to make sure we know what we're dealing with and deal with it in such a way that we show compliance to the will of God, not to our stubbornness or our authoritarian mindset or our frustration, as is often the case in our human relationships. Again, the ultimate example is the Lord and his agenda. Whatever our Heavenly Father does for us is for our good. And so we yield to him knowing that he is not cruel, that he's not being selfish, that he is not seeking to frustrate, but he's seeking to mold us into the image of our Savior so that we can receive his commendation and yield the ultimate fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life. So we have four roles in the home, four subjects, and each of those subjects really is universal for all of us, even though there are specific targets for heightened expression. But we need to all remember that we need to subject ourselves, submit ourselves to the Lord and to each other, that we need to love our Lord, but love each other as our Lord loves, that we need to obey our Lord, and we also need to be willing to obey each other and the necessities that we see in each other and obey our authorities that God has placed for our good. And then we all need to understand how to reciprocate in applying pressure that teaches and admonishes us to know better who our God is and how to come out the other side of the process of teaching as a better disciple of the Lord Jesus. So Colossians 3, um, some challenges for us where we have failed in our human responsibilities what did we expect? And yet, at the same time, God asks each of us to unilaterally be responsible for ourselves and how we respond to our roles in life. It's not my responsibility to demand somebody else gets it right. It's my responsibility to guard myself, keep myself in check, and to be what I'm supposed to be and by God's grace, that's the path that each one of us will take and the fight each one of us will fight, the course each one of us will run until we see our Savior face to face. Well, let's have a word of prayer and then maybe we'll sing one more song together. Father, thank you for giving us your eternal truth and the opportunity to serve you as we learn better what you have asked of us. Lord, I suppose every one of us here knows our own private failures, and some of our failures have even broken out of the privacy uh, and the safety of our own minds and have gone public. All of us fail. All of us are weak. And yet we have been told that you will give us grace and that you will enable, and your high standards aren't going to change but you're going to work in us to bring even 
more purified gold through our experience. Help us to be patient. Help us to yield to you and to avoid stubbornness. Help us to value reverence and love and submission. Help us to value deference. And Lord, I'd ask that because we show these qualities in our relationships here, may the Lord Jesus shine brightly in a world that is completely broken and doesn't understand. And we thank you for how you'd use us to bring others to yourself. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.